Welcome back to the Bitcoin layer. I'm Nick Batia, and today we have Adam Popescu. He is an author and journalist, and he recently wrote a brilliant article about Bitcoin mining in Africa. Adam, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Adam, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you have covered in the past, and maybe what led up to you writing this story about Bitcoin. Absolutely. So um, my my stories that I typically cover are about controversial figures, uh, a lot of counterintuitive stories. And by that, I mean both folks that um, are maybe famous in the realm of pop culture or politics, um, but also a lot of stuff about the natural world. And this story that we're talking about mixes elements of race, of climate, obviously cryptocurrency and geopolitical issues that are ultimately extremely compelling because we have a region that's incredibly fragile and decimated by decades of war and hardship. And there is a project here that is not maybe a silver bullet, but it provides a level of uh, a step towards stability, um, but it's incredibly uh, controversial and complicated which makes for a great story, ultimately. How long have you been covering some of the geopolitical issues in Africa? So um, I'm by no means an, an expert in, in Africa. I have been there a few times on assignments. I was there, uh, I was in Tanzania previously for Bloomberg looking at AI energy. So basically companies or, or uh, basically communities that bypass the grid. They don't have electricity grids in some of these rural places. So they can use solar panels. Um, and this is a way to provide a solution to an infrastructure problem, to a development problem. Essentially, the story here in Virunga is similar in as much as this is a region, again, without electricity, without a lot of roads, without a lot of government services that we often take for granted here in the West. And that provides, that provides a lot of ingredients that are very ripe for corruption for both militia groups, non-state actors, foreign companies who come in who want to do mining, et cetera, um, to, to exploit these conditions. And in this national park, it's in the far east of the Democratic Republic of Congo. It's on the border with Rwanda and Uganda. It is a very um, celebrated area. If there was a famous Netflix documentary called Virunga from about 10 years ago, and it depicts the park struggling to struggling to ward off the threats of, of big oil and a militia group. And about 10 years later, those problems have come back. So in the midst of, of threats, uh, existential and actual, this uh, little sliver of protected land also has millions of people living in and around it. Uh, mostly around that about 80,000 people live in the park. And a lot of people don't have uh, access to jobs, access to the kinds of services that provide stability. So as a result, there's incredible insecurity and a lot of uh, violence from militia groups who prey on these weaknesses. Um, the park has been doing a lot of projects to create stability, such as um, road building, this uh, hydroelectric power network that provides energy to places, uh, water pumping stations. They have a um, trying to take chocolate, which is a commodity there that's often, unfortunately, pilfered 
um, and creating a legal market for chocolate to export it. So there's a lot of things that are that are um, on paper very good. The question to a Western audience, perhaps, is: Is it a zero-sum game? Is it a net? Is it is it is it fixing all these problems? Um, is this the right move? And the more the the gray nuanced answer is that it is not a silver bullet. It will not fix everything, but it's a step towards a measure of opportunity and chance and and and, and uh, options, which are positives, which can lead to a change. Um, and in the context of, of Bitcoin, this park was it lost its revenue sources from tourism. It lost it from um, several other uh, venues, and they were building a hydroelectric plant. They didn't have a, a customer base and had a lot of energy. And it was sort of a happy accident to build, to uh, come upon the idea to build a Bitcoin mine. And that's what's kept the park afloat and kept uh, paying for, for jobs and other infrastructure there for the last couple of years. So explain to our audience really, uh, you know, how the beginning stages of this came about. We have Virunga National Park in the Democratic Republic of Congo. This is a park that is within an area that is war-torn and economically run down. But there's the potential to bring Bitcoin mining in and actually address some of the issues. So there's a there was an effort to build hydroelectric plants, right? So at what point did Bitcoin enter the potential range of outcomes and then explain to us how Bitcoin has fundamentally changed the economics surrounding the plant and then the park? Sure. So... As far as I understand, in about 2020, there was a there was a project to build a, a, a hydroelectric power plant. Uh, this plant it runs on what's called a river run system, which, in layman's terms, means it's very low impact on the environment. You can still have people use the water. There's still fish in the water in a lot of places. There's uh, it, it's not a fossil fuel endeavor. So in the middle of, of building this, this uh, facility, the, one of the, the main benefactors who was helping fund it pulled out. So the leadership of the park were searching for an answer. What can we do here? They managed to scramble together some loans. And in order to turn on the actual power plant, you need, um, it, it basically, it, it's a little bit complicated, but it, you, you can spend a certain amount of money and you have to buy the special equipment. It's basically for one-time use to start it. And it's like a draw on the power. You have to, um, it, 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 the point being is that it would have been about $200,000, $300,000 they spent. This is a very cash-strapped uh, uh, park. They get about 1% of their budget from the government. Uh, and it would have been, they would have been able to turn it on, but again, they have, they didn't have uh, the chance at that point to build out the power network. They didn't have a lot of the infrastructure. So the idea was, okay, well, what if we invest that money into something that could actually create passive income once it's paid off? And that is at the point where the park leadership started having conversations uh, to, to, to try to see, you know, can we do a Bitcoin mine here? So 
now that we have Bitcoin mining in Virunga National Park, the revenue from the mining itself is going in part to the park, and then it's going in part to the investor that came in and helped uh, the park build these mines. So now the park is depending on the revenue from Bitcoin to pay some salaries, including these rangers that protect the park. And uh, unfortunately, these rangers are in, as you described, you know, one of the most dangerous jobs in the world. That is because you have militia around. So talk to us about the park versus and, and the park and the park's rangers versus the militia groups and then bring in the DRC, the government itself. So we have, you know, three different entities here all interacting. What do you think is a likely outcome? I know it's hard to predict with these militia groups, but what is the likely outcome here with regard to the park and the government helping protect the park versus the militia? You know, that's a, it's the million dollar question or a billion dollar question in a place like this. Uh, I think if you can compare it to, for, for our audience to understand, let's say we're in Yellowstone and you think of a, maybe a park ranger in Yellowstone, maybe you don't really respect them because there is, you know, it's, uh, maybe people think of them as a tour guide or something or have a silly hat or whatever. But what if the folks in Yellowstone, they didn't have roads and they didn't have proper equipment and there were uh, folks in the park in Yellowstone who were shooting wildlife and, and uh, poaching and maybe living in the park because they don't have the means to have a home or, or um, support their families. Uh, and then let's say that Washington, D.C. Didn't, didn't care and wasn't funding it and they would have to go to private donors. Um, and let's say that, that there's oil deposits in those geysers, for instance, which can't happen, but just for the sake of argument. Um, those are some of the conditions that are going on in, in Virunga National Park that we're talking about. So the question of what will happen here and who's in charge um, and what's gonna happen down the line is uh, it, it, this has been for many years sort of what's called a frozen conflict with periods of very hot moments where the violence is tangible and uh, right now it's it's very hot. This group, the M23, uh, the UN says that they're most likely backed by a foreign government by neighboring Rwanda um, for various reasons that are worth a whole discussion in of itself and are interesting, but uh, ultimately um, there is a lot of geopolitical rivalry in this region. It's called the Great Lakes region of Africa. And there's a lot of interest from foreign governments to keep this area of the eastern part of Congo unstable. Because if it's unstable, the borders are porous and you can do mining of gold, diamonds, cobalt, whatever, and take it over the border tax-free. You know, maybe make a deal with the local militia and say, hey, you know, you control this area. There's rich deposits of Colton here and we're going to cut you X percent we're going to mine it and bring it over and ship it out and your pockets are full and so are mine. You know, there's, this also happens with government officials here. So it's unfortunately in the interest of a lot of folks to keep things the way they are. That means that the local people are often like in many 
unfortunately undeveloped and war torn places. It's the local population that suffers. They're, they're in the middle. They're left without the options. And it's not that people are inherently bad that they're poaching or de doing deforestation. They, they don't have sometimes means of food. They don't have choices for jobs. You know, this is not everyone, but this is a lot of the conditions. And if you've seen violence and been around it your whole life, it causes radicalization. So these are some of the, the, the factors at play here. And the, the rangers themselves, many of them are from, the, these are people from these communities. So it's almost like becoming a police officer in a bad neighborhood if you grew up there. You know, you want to change things, but you might be looked at as a bad guy, you know, because you're enforcing a law in a place where it's hard to follow the law, you know. Um, on top of that, you have the uh, leadership of the park, the director, his name is Emmanuel Demerode, and he's a uh, Belgian national. Again, this is a country with a Belgian colonial past, um, which is, weighs quite heavily here. And for these reasons, it's very easy to, to cast judgment and say that the choices that this park is making, uh, there's a term called fortress conservancy, or, or con, um, excuse me, fortress uh, conservation, which means you erect walls around a protected area and you don't let the locals in. Now that's not exactly what's happening here because there's some give and take with some communities that are illegal in the park. But essentially, this is a UNESCO World Heritage Site. It is part of the, uh, it's the eastern part of the Congo Basin, which is the second largest rainforest in the world. Uh, it's a carbon storing area that is important as, as the world gets hotter. Uh, all these things are reasons to protect this place. But on the other hand, the, the problem with this is here again, we're in the West, we're telling, we're saying, we're, we're, we're sharing our values. We've already destroyed our natural lands and we're telling the rest of the world, hey, wait a second, you want to, you have iPhones, you, you see what's up on YouTube, you're on TikTok, you want all the things we have, but we're saying you shouldn't touch those. So all, all that makes it extremely hard to manage ex expectations and to um, figure out what's going to happen because the population keeps growing, not a lot of development, the government ignores it, and this park is being forced in a way to be a beyond the authority that it's supposed to be you know it is a it is part of the government it is uh enforcing the the laws uh, of of this uh, nation but building roads building hydroelectric power plants you know can you imagine if this was happening in yellowstone you would say what is what does all this have to do with conservation and the park will say, well, we can't have conservation unless we have community buy-in, unless we protect this, uh, this, this area. And that's the big push and pull. Um, Bitcoin helps keep the lights on right now. You know, in a, in a period when there's no tourism and there's, which tourism accounts for, I think, 40% of the, of the annual budget of this park. The, the revenue streams are way down. And right now, even though the, the price of, the, of this coin has dropped tremendously, right now, even, even still, it's, it's providing some income, which is helping keep it going, which is helping 
funding some of the infrastructure and funding salaries, um, does the average person benefit from this? From a one-to-one, -one, no, right now, because they're they're not um, they're not receiving something in their pocket. Does this help to the conditions that we're talking about, the insecurity, the instability? Again, that's a debatable uh, debatable question. A lot of experts would say again that this is this this uh, project has not yet worked to provide stability. Now there is a bit of a gray area, middle ground here of. Is it, is it a one or the other? Is it possible to be um, a net positive without changing the conditions everywhere and of all lives? And, you know, that's kind of where it's at. If, if there's been, let's say, 10, 12, 15,000 businesses created from this electricity, which is what's providing all the job development and entrepreneurship. If there's 15,000 jobs and every job of one person is you know, uh, average household here, it's got seven people. So you start doing some math and let's say 50,000 or 100,000 people benefit. You know, there's millions here, but 100,000 people improving their lives, perhaps not joining a militia, perhaps not exploiting those resources. You know, then that's another way to look at it, which is a positive. Again, very controversial because there's lots of, 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 of people here who may not be at the table as decision makers, who also may be upset that the park is denying access to some of these resources. And it is, it's a very gray area, this whole scene, especially when you consider that the revenue from the Bitcoin mining itself goes to the park and then maybe some people are getting that directly through their salary, but the energy stability itself, like you mentioned, the access to electricity is what allows people to start businesses. Right. And that electricity is on in part to the Bitcoin mining operation that came in and helped contribute to basically solidifying this hydroelectric plant on the river. Would you say that that's a fair characterization? Well, I, I would say that the, the, the way that the park uh, describes it, is that they don't have all their eggs in, in one basket, that this is part of a portfolio, if you will, of green business development. One of them being agriculture, agribusiness, everything from chia seeds to chocolate, um, to coffee. Um, again, the, the electricity provides uh, a suite of, of services, um, but one of the, the main ones to make money right now is, is certainly the, the Bitcoin. And okay, so can you tell us about, you mentioned all the mining exploitation going on in the surrounding areas. Child mining as well is one of the big problems in this area. How does Bitcoin make its way out of this one use case in Virunga National Park mm -hmm. to the surrounding areas to potentially alleviate the problems that drive people to exploit national resources or participate in militia because of a complete lack of a better option. Is it something that we should get optimistic about as Bitcoin enthusiasts that Bitcoin can, we can use this example and actually use it to spread. And of course we have to understand that Bitcoin mining is only possible with access to energy. So that is a big um, that's a big factor here to consider. 
Look, I think that there's room for optimism if indeed you if you can use clean energy, uh, if it can be a renewable, and if you can have locals actually uh, benefiting as opposed to just a, a, a foreign national coming in and bankrolling it and taking all the money and, and, and if you can have some incentivization. Now, um, I don't know how that happens because you have the, the folks who are paying for it have to be, uh, I don't want to use the, the word altruistic, but um, they, they have to be generous to try to, to want to change conditions. Uh, so that remains to be seen. But I do know that uh, Kenya, um, other places in the, the, the DRC, uh, I believe some other neighboring countries um, are thinking about this because, you know, again, if you can create the, the potential for, for electricity, for power, which not only provides the lighting in your home, but heating, the ability to have more safety at night, um, quality of life improves so much. Lots of things that just improve the the day-to-day the -day, um, existence of, of, you know, communities, no doubt. Um, you know, those are all benefits. If it's tied to a, a hydro project that, that does Bitcoin, um, and if somehow that those workers can be participants uh, in terms of both a, a, an equitable salary, that they're not exploited, um, to possibly be trading themselves as to way to, to make more money. You know, I, I don't know if that's a step too far, but certainly if, if there was some regulation about how these projects work, and I know that regulation is somewhat of a dirty word for the, the cryptocurrency community, um, but I think those are the things you, you really need to have it go beyond sort of fringe cases. And I call this fringe because this is a country without, when you don't have a lot of uh, opportunity or, or, or choices, these are the typical startup conditions where you, we have a problem and we're going to solve it. Um, but can we extend that to, to a more widespread, um, to other places? Well, I think you have to create not just the, the, the wishful, maybe magical thinking that this will solve everything, but if you can do it in a way that you you don't pol further pollute, because that's been the big knock on, on Bitcoin and cryptocurrency mining, um, and if you can do it in a way that people improve their lives, then that could work. It's fascinating to think about Bitcoin being the differentiator in some of these pockets of the world. But when I think about Bitcoin implementations or let's say adoption by regular people, I think about Latin America. I think about Venezuela mm -hmm. and Argentina specifically to a lesser degree, El Salvador, which has adopted Bitcoin as legal tender alongside the US dollar. El Salvador doesn't have its own currency. Um, but you think about people in Venezuela and Argentina who have suffered government currency inflation for decades and through different regimes. That's the big battle that people are fighting in Latin America when they think about, should I adopt Bitcoin? How can this be used? 
you're 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 against these corrupt regimes that are destroying the value of your currency in africa the issue is more that everyone has ak-47s and is shooting at each other in that way it prevents the adoption in the same way that it happens in latin america because there's a threat of violence that is coming along with their interaction so how does bitcoin and bitcoin mining interact with all the violence in these countries there's violence between the militias within the countries there's violence with militias cross-border and then there's violence with the armies of the governments that are some of them democratically reformed other uh sorry democratically formed others that are led by a dictator how does bitcoin address the violence between the different parties in Africa? A very good and very loaded question, uh, not to have a double meaning. Um, before before I address that, you, you mentioned Latin America um, as a corollary or a um, counterpoint. Uh, I think certainly in El Salvador, very unstable place, very corrupt place, because you have the narcos and you have the, the gangs, most prominently MS. Um, and the president uh, there, I mean, from what I understand, people aren't really using Bitcoin the way that this, the president would like them to. Um, and their currency, and they've had all sorts of stuff. And uh, I don't know if that experiment, what will ultimately happen there, but that is a place incredibly violent too. And that was another way of, uh, Sub, trying to control and subvert those conditions um, and what remains to be seen what happens with the Bitcoin city powered by the volcano. Great idea. Great headline grabber. Does it help the person selling, you know, food at the bottom of the mountain? I don't know. I mean, I know that the, the president over there also offered everyone a, a digital wallet, every citizen with preloaded a certain amount of coin. Don't remember how much. But a lot of them were never used because it's uh, not everyone has internet penetration, and um, it doesn't always make sense on a for everyone. Uh, that doesn't mean it's not a good idea, but it's it may be it may be a little too ambitious. Um, in Africa, you know, I think there are. I think bucking again the narrative there. There is a lot, it's a very young continent. Um, by that I mean a lot of the people there, um, incredibly young in terms of age. So uh, very digital first, very entrepreneurial, places like Nigeria, Kenya, South Africa, uh, on and on. There's you know a lot of very intelligent, educated people, typically in the cities as opposed to rural places, but who want to be... Uh, sitting at the table of these kind of global topics, discussions, um, who want the same things we do. And by that, um, materially, um, safety, uh, choice, traveling. And in the next coming decades, you're going to see more and more development here um, economically and, and artistically, et cetera, all that. So question being, you know, how much – how much more stable it can get 
There are places there, there that are incredibly violent, the Sahel of Africa, uh, East Africa, the Northeast, and Ethiopia, Somalia, um, you know, parts of North Africa as well, Morocco, Western Sahara, and um, obviously Tunisia, and, and some of those places from even still from the Arab Spring and all that. So it's every place there has its own challenges. But again, it's not a, it's not just one story and it's not everybody running around with a weapon. But there, the problem is again, it's very uneven. If it can be more even, if it can be more uh, secure, then I think a lot of these problems get solved on their own. And ultimately, whether it's Congo or South Africa or Kenya, it's really a political problem. To get these governments, the heads of state, to want to, to incentivize for them to play by the rules. And by the rules, I mean the global rules of freedom of speech, of equality, of following the laws and not treating the presidency as your personal piggy bank. Those are the questions. Um, the U.S. has just had a big, um, made a big push for that. A lot of African leaders come to Washington, D.C. and talking about investing in the continent, partially because China is done so much there. And Russia is also using, sending their Wagner Group folks and doing a lot of mining as well and, and various endeavors. So qu the question for Africans now is, is this a, is this lip service or does the U.S. really care about exporting their ideals and their, their money to help some of these things grow and develop? And in the past, uh, we haven't, or we throw money sometimes at the problem and that's not enough. Um, big question now is, are the values of the United States values in the developing world? And sometimes they're not because people feel like they haven't been um, taken seriously or pandered to. And hopefully that, that will change because a more stable continent there is, I mean, we're in a very global connected society now and stability everywhere is, is good for everyone. We appreciate your nuance on the violence in Africa because it is, it's localized, it's different in every, in every part of the continent. And it doesn't mean that um, it doesn't mean that violence rules the continent, right? Uh, the continent is still, uh, there are still, it's the youngest demographic in the world. The youth in Nigeria is embracing Bitcoin in a very big way. We, I just saw uh, today that uh, learn about Bitcoin or buy Bitcoin as a Google term, the two most popular or sorry, the, the two cities in the world that it's the most frequently uh, searched term are both in Nigeria. Mm -hmm. And so how does, how does Nigeria and the Bitcoin adoption there play into what's happening in, in the continent uh, surrounding Bitcoin? Is it something that it's localized to Nigeria because of the currency situation over there? Is it a demographic thing where the people are more entrepreneurial? What, what's going on there that makes it um, a really great place for Bitcoin to thrive. Well, I, I can't speak specifically to Nigeria because I, I frankly don't don't know. Um, but I do know that Nigeria is an, an economic behemoth uh, in Africa. Um, tremendous film industry in Nollywood. Tremendous music industry uh, with with a lot of their artists there. You know, 
uh, and Afropop music. Um, so it's culturally very much the way that California or New York are the forefront of America and it ripples out um, in terms of ideas and culture and, and things like that. I think Ni Nigeria plays that role. Um, and another thing is they, they, you know, it's a country that's rich resource wise with oil and has had a lot of trouble with that. Um, one thing that we haven't talked about, about Bitcoin, about, um, about mining and about becoming, um, you know, trying to use the commodity is that hopefully folks who are, who are buying and paying for it, hopefully they can afford it and they're not taking out loans because all these kinds of uh, conditions we're talking about, if you are, have some measure disposable wealth, enough to buy, let's say a hundred dollars worth. And if you're, you know, on a low level or whatever it is, if you can do that and not have to go in the red for it, then again, it's could improve uh, quality of life. If conditions are, are, are um, if conditions are the way that the Bitcoin community hopes they will be. Um, and if they're not, if you're taking out loans and you know, that's, it's very speculative and very dangerous. And it goes to all the, the counterpoints of, of this, of this currency. Adam Popescu, thank you so much for joining us today at the Bitcoin layer. We really appreciate your time and sharing with us your knowledge about Africa, your experience there and how Bitcoin can potentially help address violence and other issues going on in the continent. Adam, can you give our audience please where to find you and your work online? Sure. Um, on social media, it's Adam Popescu. A-D-A-M-P-O-P-E-S-C-U. And uh, you can just put me on Google and find a, a lot of good stuff. Great. Thanks, Adam. Thank you for your time. Thank you. The Bitcoin Layer is sponsored by Voltage. Voltage is a provider of enterprise-grade Bitcoin infrastructure. Thanks for joining us here at the Bitcoin Layer.